Well, today I'm continuing my series called Glory to God, the Christmas Playlist. And in this series, what we've been doing is we've been working through the various, I guess, prophetic songs that accompanied the birth of Jesus. That, as I've repeatedly said, that in fact, most of the prophecy in the Bible is actually uh, framed in song. And even though we kind of lose that in the English language, they were very rich and very pictorial in what they say and what they encourage people to do. And uh, so we've been working through this, seeing the celebration, the joy, the excitement around the coming of the Messiah. And we began the first week with uh, going back 500 years to the prophet Isaiah and to the first declarations of his coming servant king. And uh, then we moved through to the miracle, to the birth of the miracle child, who would be known as John the Baptizer, and Zechariah, his father's wonderful prophecy at the eighth day of his, after his birth. Then the ones, then we see the glorious declarations of Mary as an angel visits her and gives her this news that no other human being had ever you heard in history before. And her amazing response, her heart response, to, to be your will, I'll do it. And then finally, last week, we looked at the angels as they visited the shepherds. Uh, if you've missed any of these, they are actually up on our, our Facebook page, on, the, uh, uh, on our audio page, and also on Liberty Connect. You can see the videos there as well. So today, what we w- I want to do is I want to move a few weeks after Jesus is born to a very special event, and I want to look at Simeon's song. Simeon's song, beginning in Luke 2, verse 25. I'm on the wrong one here. This is the wrong one. So I'll have to read it. Someone's put up the wrong one. <laughs> yeah, it's Simeon's song. It is number five. So I'll read, just read it. You're going to actually have to listen this time. So Luke chapter 2, verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ or the Messiah. So Jesus, as we know, he was born in Bethlehem and just under 10 kilometers north, Bethlehem is about 10 kilometers north of of Jerusalem, where the great king lives, where the the great temple is built. And in in that city lives an old man called Simeon. Simeon was a very devout and righteous man. He really lived out his faith. I mean, this wasn't anything nominal about him. He was, it was at the very core of who he was, the very core of his being. And we're told in that passage that Simeon was looking for something, something very, very specific. He was waiting for something to happen. He was waiting for what it says was the consolation of Israel, the consolation of Jerusalem. What that means is the comforting. In other words, he was waiting for the one that would come and make everything right for the people of Israel. For people of Israel. Remember, Jerusalem at this point had been under Roman occupation for over 50 years. And Simeon was waiting for the one who would come and bring release and wholeness and life to, his, to the people of Israel, to bring deliverance to them. And he's looking for it. He's waiting for it. And it tells us he's been waiting for half a century. Half a century. I mean, I don't even know if you can conceive that, you know? I mean, the nearest thing, I was trying to think of what, I'm going to wait that long. The nearest thing I could think of was being a Warriors fan. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, maybe next year, maybe next year the Warriors will do it. Next year they are, yeah, yeah. You know, Warriors are people of great faith. They should be Christians because they've got, anyhow, that's a whole other sermon. 
So to believe in year in and year out for 50 years, man, that is a long, long time. And here's Simeon waiting. And what he's waiting for is something that, that well, really, to be honest, it, it is, actually makes the Warriors winning insignificant, as great as that could be. He's waiting for the Messiah. And, and uh, even through all these years of waiting, he'd never given a heart apart. His spirit was still rich with hope and belief that, that, that before he died, he would see the, Lord, the Lord's promise. And the reason he believed that is because he'd received a promise himself directly from God that said that God had told him that he would not die. And, uh, you know, and now he's an old man. I mean, he's an old man. Death can't be held off forever. He, he knows that he's going to see death, and he's going to see death more likely sooner than later. But he does have this promise. He can't prove it. He, there's no, it's not empirically provable but by the Spirit it's been revealed to him, so he will hold on to it. Not, not in his mind, but in his heart. He knows by revelation of the Spirit, given to his heart, that he would not see death until he see the Lord's Messiah. And, and you know, this is, this, this is really what each one of us, come, it's how we come to salvation. I mean, it was the same phenomenon with Peter. Remember when Jesus Christ, who do you say I am? You're the Son, the, the Son of the living God. That was revealed by the Spirit. And here the Spirit is revealed to this old man, Simeon, that he's not going to see death until he sees his Messiah. So Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Simeon knows nothing of this, nothing of what's to come. But 40 days after Jesus is born, and according with the Torah, Mary and Joseph need to bring Jesus to the temple. Part of this is they've got to bring this young baby, as all good Orthodox Jews would do, to present him to the Lord. It was a requirement, for the, especially for the firstborn male. They were brought to the temple and presented in a very special way, dedicated unto the Lord. And part of that was they would actually have to make a ritual of the sacrificial lamb. Now, the Torah also made a provision because if you were really, really poor and you couldn't afford a lamb because it was very expensive, you could substitute two pigeons. And that's exactly what Mary and Joseph are going to do. So they travel the eight or so kilometres towards Jerusalem, 40 days after Jesus is born. I mean, he's not six weeks old yet. And they bring him to the temple. And they offer not a lamb, but two pigeons as a provision for the poor. You know, the world, is, is, you know, it's, even that is pictorial. They couldn't offer a lamb because he was going to be the lamb. And it also shows us that how, how Jesus always provides. He lived amongst the poor and he provides for the poor. And on this day, this day, 40 days after, which is the first Christmas, the Spirit says to Simeon one morning, he says, Simeon, Old man, go to the temple. Get there now. Simeon's not really felt anything like this for, for years. And so he gathers his stuff up and he, he hurries from his home down to the temple. And, and he's wondering, what's going on? Why, why am I here? And, and he's looking around and he's, there must be something going to get. And then his eye spots this young couple standing probably shyly in the corner, very, very there. And, and he, oh, what's, what's in her hands? A little baby. And he realizes that he had to dedicate this baby to the Lord. And then the Spirit speaks. That's the one. Right there. That's the Messiah. Simeon goes over. Says to Mary, may I? And he takes that little baby in his arms. Jesus in his arms. And he beholds him. He looks. He sees his salvation. But he not only sees his salvation, he holds the salvation of the world in his arms. He's waited for 50 years. 
He's been promised that he wouldn't see death. Not only does he now see the promise, he touches the promise. He holds the promise in his hands. He cradles, he, he embraces it. This not six-year-old infant, six-week-old infant rather, in his arms, holds him, I'm sure, against his heart. He doesn't understand any of what's going on. He doesn't understand how, but it's being revealed to him that this, this is going to be the salvation of Israel. Simeon's overwhelmed, and he breaks into song. As he, Simeon takes God in his hand, arms, and he begins to bless God. And he looks up. He says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. That's Simeon's song. But it's really going to be his swan song. It's going to be the last, this is his last performance. He's now ready to die. And he says, Lord, concerning your servant, let him depart in peace. He acknowledges his own death will come soon. He's completed his service. He's being dismissed. He's done his bit. The master is saying it's time to go. And he says, I'm willing to go. I'm at peace. I'm not anxious. I'm not troubled. I'm not disappointed. I've seen the Savior. And you know, we, we are left with that real distinct impression as we read it that Simeon is going to die soon. And we're also, as we read it, just so aware that he's at peace because he's held the salvation of God in his hands. He's waited and he's waited decade after decade. And now he sees it holds salvation. Isn't that, that's so poignant, so beautiful. And that's, that, that's Simeon's story with his song. But this part of the story wouldn't actually be complete without another person that we need to meet. Because someone else shows up at the same moment. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter for now of the tribe Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband for seven years after their marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. She did not, she did not leave the temple ground serving day and night with fasts and prayers. And at, the very mo at this very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak about him to all those who were looking forward to the redemption of, Israel, of Jerusalem. Anna was what later tradition would call an anchorite. Um, I mentioned a few weeks ago Julian of Norwich, who was a 14th century anchorite and lived in England. And what they are, they're usually women who had taken up residence in a church and through the, their piety and their devotion, their life of prayer, they would gain a reputation of being extraordinarily holy and often prophets or, prophet, or prophetesses. And um, many churches would actually provide a little room, and possibly this was the same in the temple, a room where they could live. And people would come and seek their counsel and their redirection and their prayers, and, and they would pray for people, and often people would get healed, and all sorts of things would go on. And um, so that, that was what was known as an anchorite. And it seems that Anna was something like that, that she had attached herself to the temple because it says she was always there. Maybe she did have that little place to stay, we don't know. But she's there day and night, it says, and she's praying and she's fasting. And, and in that process, she's learned to hear the voice of God and she's known as a prophet. 
People want to hear her word. They respect her holiness. They've seen her life. And, and now we, and we can actually make some guesses about Anna's life from the various comments and hints that Luke drops into the narrative. First of all, we know she's 84 years old. We know that she was widowed only after only seven years of marriage. So she, you know, remember she would have married as a very young woman, 14, 15. And she lived with her husband for seven long year, for seven years, and then, 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 unexpectedly, he became, he becomes a, uh, she becomes a widow. And, and maybe that's the time that she began to live in the temple, and devotes her life to the Lord, and becomes this, this prophetess, if you like. And it's interesting because if you take the dates back of all those events, and look at it. She became a, a, a widow around the time that a Roman general, Pompey, occupied Jerusalem. That's a picture of him there, or a bust of him there. He was a, he was a, Roman, he was a Roman senator, and, and like many Roman senators, the most Roman senators, they were generals, they were armed. He would actually become one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest man in Rome. Uh, but he was also incredibly corrupt. And you can read the history of this guy. And he led a campaign uh, for Rome against invading Judah that the, in the same time frame as when Anna lost her husband. And he led a three-month siege. Now, don't confuse this with the, what happened in AD 70 with Titus at the destruction of the temple. This is 133 years before that. And the Jewish people are, trying to, the Jewish people are always trying to resist, but they were resisting again. And eventually, 12,000 men would take a stand. Jewish men would take a stand on the Temple Mount. And for three months, they fought off the Roman Empire, fought them and resisted them. And finally, they realized that it was hopeless. And so they surrendered. They surrendered to Pompey. Pompey received their surrender, and then he promptly sent his soldiers in, and they killed all 12,000 men, slaughtered them. Pompey then entered the Holy of Holies. And you know you have the, the temple, the holy part, then the holy of holies, which is the, the most sacred part. He entered into that, and uh, really, that was the ultimate blasphemy and desecration for a Jewish person, and that marked the beginning of the Roman occupation of Jerusalem. And, and you know, so I do wonder with the dates lining up. I mean, we have no historical evidence of this, but it did make me wonder if perhaps Anna's husband was amongst those twelve thousand men slain that day. The dateline would certainly be right. And I, so it's sort of quite, you know, did she become a widow because her husband was fighting for freedom of Jerusalem? And, and in her grief and her sorrow, she seeks God and she become, lives in the temple and becomes a prophet, a renowned prophet. And uh, so there she is just on this day, the same time the Spirit is revealing to Simeon, this baby is the one. And Simeon's holding this little child in awe. Anna walks up and she sees the baby. Can you imagine it? When she sees Simeon and, and she, she knows something's going on because she, she got to know Simeon and she sees his body language and even though he's an old man, he's kind of done a little bit of a, you know, Jerusalem two-step or something, celebrating, you know, that something's going on here. He's holding a baby and he's looking at him and he's excited and, and, and the anointing, the presence of the Holy Spirit, just the quickening begins to, ah, oh, what's going on here? And she, she may have stumbled and been overwhelmed. Something's happening as she moved closer and closer and closer to this child. And then she looks. It is him. How, how, how can it be? This 84-year-old woman. And it says that she's talked to everyone who was looking. 
I can imagine her just being in the temple. Come here, come here, come here. You've got to see this. You've got to see this. Come here. The, the, the redemption of Israel, who we've been hoping for, here it is. And she points to this little baby. Can you imagine what people probably thought? You know, you've got to be kidding me. Salvation, freedom, deliverance from a baby, and a peasant baby at that? Come on. Come on. Even though they respected both Anna and, and Simeon, I'm sure people just shook their head and said, yep, old age has finally got to them. Just walked away. Because you see, they, and it's interesting, they both spoke, the infant Jesus as salvation and redemption. That's the language they use, salvation and redemption. Because you see, indeed, Jesus would save. Jesus would be the saviour of both Simeon and Anna. They had seen their salvation. They had spoken of the baby as redemption. Simeon held him in his arms. Both Simeon and Anna can and do say, this child, this little baby will grow up and save and redeem the world. Now, neither of them, as I said, would have had a, a clue. And they would have really, they, they didn't even have any idea of what salvation was like. I mean, it's interesting because Simeon in his, in his prophecy talks about the redemption of, it, of the Gentiles. Now, for many Jews at that time, as far as they were concerned, the Jewish people were going to be saved and the Gentiles were going to burn and good riddance to them. And so suddenly here's this, this, these prophecies that are coming forward that this, this, this little baby is not only going to be the redemption of Israel and Jerusalem, but he's going to be the light and redemption of the world. And come on. Come on, that's incredible. But you see, theology, uh, salvation is not based on theological acumen. Theology is not based on getting good grades in a theological class. Salvation is based entirely upon trust. Or you could say it this way, salvation is not based in believing the right thing. Salvation is based in trusting the right person. And both Simeon and Anna have confessed this this little baby held in their hands, this is the one whom saves. This is the one who redeems. They put their trust in him. They didn't understand it. They couldn't understand it. But they believed. See, any assumptions they would have made would have been wrong. Because Jesus was so revolutionary. We've looked at this week in and week out. Jesus' ministry was so revolutionary, so turned the world upside right. No one had any idea. You see, in fact, since the days of General Pompey, Jerusalem, as I said, had been under Roman domination. And so when they're talking about salvation and deliverance, they would have been thinking in terms of a military salvation and deliverance. A, 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 a liberator, a messiah, like the guy called Judas Maccabee. Judas Maccabee was a national hero, a messianic figure. He'd lived 160 years earlier than even this. And, and he'd led a, a revolt against the Seleucid Empire that had been dominating Israel at the time. And so around the time of Jesus, when anyone spoke of a Messiah, the idea was of a military deliver deliverer, of the ilk of David or, or perhaps Judah the Hammer. And so, like most Jews, I would think these two prophets, when they looked at this baby, thought, yep, I don't know how it's going to happen, but he's going to grow up, and he's going to become a great military leader, and he's going to lead our people out of bondage. Of course, <laughs> we, we do know what happened. This little baby, Yeshua, grows up, and he doesn't pick up a, a, a weapon. He becomes known as the Prince of Peace. You see, salvation does not come then or now through an army or a violent revelation. Salvation comes from the Prince of Peace. 
So was Simon, sorry, was Simeon and Anna wrong in their idea that this baby would lead a revolution? <laughs> no way. They weren't wrong. They just didn't imagine the kind of revolution that this baby was going to lead. Because you see, Jesus does bring a revolution, but it's just not violent. In fact, violence isn't particularly revolutionary when you think about it, because our whole history of the mankind is based around war and violence. It's kind of old hat, really. Violence is so often seen as the answer, and it's, it, they think it's the most common way to bring change. But this little baby that Simeon and Anna are beholding, are, he's going to do something actually revolutionary. He's going to do something so brand new that it's going to turn the whole world upside around. This little baby is going to bring the revolution of the kingdom of God. Not the kingdom of man, not of any person, but the kingdom of God by the way that is salvation. You see, that's what salvation is. Salvation is the kingdom of God. Our experience of salvation is experience of all that the kingdom of God is. The forgiveness of sins, living an alternative life, the following of Jesus, ultimately resurrection of all things at the end. That, that is the kingdom of God being manifest. Paul, in all his writings, he calls it salvation. That's his big word, if you like. Jesus, though, he tends to call it the coming of the kingdom of God. They're not talking about two separate things. They're talking about the same thing. And so as Jesus, when he grows up, he inaugurates the, the kingdom of God. That is, his, that is salvation. He does it in his teaching and in his life and in his miracles and finally in his death and resurrection. And listen, folks, this is where the rubber hits the road. We, the church, the body of Christ, we are called to embody the revolutionary kingdom of Christ here and now. That's a calling that each one of us is given. So revolutionary. So countercultural. So otherworldly than what we have come to know. When Simeon and, and Anna prophesied this, that the little baby Jesus would grow up to, and bring salvation and redemption, they had no idea. They could have never imagined that Jesus was going to bring salvation and redemption in the ultimate sense. That it was going to be salvation from the dominion of death, which is the great enemy. They couldn't have imagined that, that they could really, you know, I, I'm, to look at this little baby, this little baby was going to deliver up salvation from the ultimate enemy, the enemy of death. You know, you go back to Luke chapter 2. Here we are, two old prophets, Anna and Simeon, both about to die. They'll descend into the realm of the dead. But you know what? The good news is they're not going to stay there. They're not going to be lost there. They'll be liberated. They'll be rescued. They'll be redeemed. They'll be delivered. They'll be saved from death. And who's going to do it? <laughs> of course, Jesus. And one day that very infant that Simeon held in his arms is going to hold Simeon in his arms and say, welcome into my paradise. Jesus says it this way, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. At Easter, I, gave, I put up an icon of resurrection. It's one of my favorite Easter icons. 
You see Jesus there in the middle. If we can find my little lights. There's Jesus, and there's the apostles living around him, and their representative is Adam and Eve being pulled out of their grave. But it could also be Simeon. I kind of like to think about it. Maybe it was, it's also a picture of the promise of Simeon and Anna also being pulled out. That Jesus grips humanity and pulls them from the ultimate enemy of death and brings them into life. And I can imagine, can you imagine the soul? Simeon standing before the throne, tapping the guy next to him. I prophesied over him when he was a baby. <laughs> me. <laughs> it was me. I, I did it. It was me. You know, Christ pulls Simeon and Anna out of the graves, out of the dominion of death into eternal life. In the old city of uh, Jerusalem, there's an abbey on the Mount Zion called the Domitian Abbey. It's a, a Benedictine church, and it's built on the traditional place where Mary is supposed to have been buried in AD 41. And downstairs there's a crypt, and there's a number of icons, and here's another central one. I'll give you a bit of art today. And uh, this, the Greek says, on there it says, for the remission of sins, and it's actually titled The Falling Asleep of the God-Bearer of, uh, sorry, yeah, The Falling Asleep of the God-Bearer, or Mary. And you see, if you see there, there's Mary dead and the saints around him. But if you look up here, here's Jesus and he's holding Mary and wrapped up in death clothes, representative of the resurrection. So once Mary held him, and we see so many icons, you know, so many pictures of Jesus being held by Mary like that. And this picture turns it all the way around. And when Mary's in the coffin, she will be held in the arms of Jesus. And that's our promise. We celebrate Christmas. We celebrate incarnation, God with us. But simply not just God with us now, God with us all the time because he brings life to us, brings us life. See, Mary, Anna, Simeon, those we've lost, every one of us here, we will not be lost to death. Why? Because we'll be held in the arms of Jesus. And I think that's, that, that's good news, people. That's what takes away the fear of death. That yes, it is appointed that we will all die once. Death does come. But at the death, we're not dropped into some dark abyss. We become held in the armage of Jesus. When you die, you don't go to hell, you don't go to show, whatever you want to call it. It's not going to happen. You're going to be held in the arms of Jesus. And I think that's just such an amazing, amazing thing. You see, what happens is we discover that words, the prophecy of Simeon, the saviour and redeemer of the world, we discover that Jesus Christ is indeed the true saviour and redeemer of the world. And that's good news. Amen. Father, we just thank you that we, that, that Lord, Simeon said he could go in peace now because he'd fulfilled his, his calling. And Lord, while we're not going to die yet, we can go in peace today because of what you have done, that you are the saviour and redeemer of this world. That Father, we, we, we like Simeon, have beheld the saviour. Father, the light that enlightens the nations, the glory of your, of your salvation. And Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for that, for the hope that each one of us have in Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us, the hope of glory. 
the Prince of Peace. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you. that, And Lord, I pray that con- we would just continue in the revelation of how glorious and beautiful you are. Thank you, Father. I said it last week, and, uh, you know, based on Colossians 1, Christ is before all things. Christ has first place in all things. All things were created in and through Christ. All things were created for Christ. In Christ, all things that hold together. In Christ, God has reconciled all things. That's our declaration. Hey, this morning we're going to take communion up and going to share communion together. So if those who are going to serve it could serve it, if the worship team could come up. What I want you to do is I'd ask you to hold the communion, both the bread and the wine, and we'll take it together. And there's also gluten-free bread if you require that. Thank you. God in this place, we believe your goodness, we receive your grace, we delight ourselves at your table, oh God, you do all things well, just look at our lives, and we can see the love of God in this place. Believe your goodness, we receive your grace, we delight ourselves at your table, oh God, you do all things well, just look at our lives. Yeah, thank you, Lord. The table has been prepared, not of the church, but of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has made ready for those who love the Lord a little and those who love him more. You're invited to come to this table, the certain, the uncertain, the faithful, the doubters. So come, you who have much faith and those who have you who have little. For you have fellowshiped faithfully and you have tried and failed. 
but there is always space for you at the table. Come not because of your goodness, but because of the goodness of Christ. Come and meet the risen Christ. Come and eat from the tree of life rediscovered. Turn your hearts towards Jesus. Receive the salvation of God and receive Jesus. For Jesus is the bread of life, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Come to where heaven and earth overlap, the table of the Lord, and receive the life of Christ as your own. The grace and the peace of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So receive this bread this morning. This is the body of Christ broken for you. And this cup you now take is the blood shed for you. So eat it and drink and know that you are encountering the mercy, the grace, the forgiveness and the salvation of Christ. So let's do that together.